without, I guess, further ado, we'll go ahead and dig in. And I can't remember what episode number this is. I don't, I'm not keeping yeah, track we'll anymore. Just, we, we don't need to say anything. So, <laughs> so welcome back to O Comrade, Where Art Thou? Uh, we had a little uh, hiatus over the holidays that kind of mostly because we were in different places with family, kind of hard to record. Um, but we're coming back in full force in the new year. And we're at the, it's the, what's the... What's a different Russian calendar, Alex? We're we're still coming back in time for the new year on uh, on oh, that right. calendar. Well, it's, the, it's the Julian calendar. <laughs> yeah. Right. So it was the calendar that Julius Caesar and the Romans used, and then later in the medieval period, or maybe it was the, I'm not exact. It was medieval period, maybe like the Renaissance. They discovered that it was slightly off. Right. That's why yeah. they added the leap day, and the Orthodox Church didn't want to adopt it because that's you know the Pope and Catholicism and, you know, they're opposed to one another. So that's why the Orthodox liturgical calendar is off. And, so and real, like real history heads know that there's about like 400 years in there that aren't actually real and never actually took place. Oh, of course, <laughs> obviously. Um, <laughs> I mean, what's the line from uh, true detective? Like time is the flat circle. Yeah. <laughs> Take that, you know, interpret that how you will. Um, so we're back for some sort of new year uh, in full force. And, uh, <laughs> of course, like current events never cease to fail us in terms of the material to talk about. And to kind of fill people in on what's happened, uh, we killed a general in Iran, probably in violation of international law and the United States Constitution. But I'll leave that for um, the talking heads on TV. And basically... <laughs> Regardless of how you feel about it, I think we can all agree that Trump stirred up a hornet's nest in the Middle East. Uh, so Iran and, and Iran, too, has accidentally shot down. They've admitted it shot down a Ukrainian passenger jet, right. an Iranian airspace. Um, but I think the real, at least for us, the big moment that's come out of this is Iraq, which, lest we forget, is a sovereign nation. Uh, is really looking like they are putting in place a mechanism or at least a, a procedure for formally asking the United States to withdraw its soldiers from mm -hmm. its territory. Uh, so to go back to the, the strike on the um, Suleimani, the Iranian general, again, regardless of your feelings about it, uh, it raises a lot of important issues. And for the Iraqis, it's like, hey, this happened on our soil uh, it killed some of our citizens. It was our airspace that was used to do this, and no one asked us about it. Right you know, it, no at the Baghdad airport, too. Uh, yeah, one of the, at the Baghdad airport, one of their busiest so, airports. And so the question is, right? Like, how far does Iraqi sovereignty extend? Uh, and at least so far, um, now I will put the caveat in there in here that Iraq has not formally asked the United States to to evacuate its troops or remove its soldiers. It hasn't come to that point yet, but it looks like that that is going to happen. And so far, the United States' response has been no. You know, like we're a, a stabilizing force in the Middle East, um, one of the most They called it a force for good. Yeah, okay, we're a force for good in the Middle East, and, you know, we're not going to leave. And so now the now the quite now this sort of raises all these very, you know, very tense topics, very tense questions. I think number one, right, going back to the Iraq war was like, what was this all about? Because at least ostensibly it was to remove Saddam Hussein mm -hmm. and install a sovereign nation, a democracy in its place. 
And that democracy looks anyway like it's going to ask us to leave. And so, again, what what was the whole point? Like part of the point of installing a, a democracy and things like that, a sovereign nation, is you need to respect those decisions. So the United States' role in that is coming up. Um, you know, another thing that's coming up is, you know, the United States has soldiers all over the world in hundreds of countries. And ostensibly they are there for the the defense of these countries. They're there at these countries' behest. Um but then the question becomes, you know, what happens when things go wrong and those countries ask us to leave? What happens at that moment? Um, so I think that what this does is it sort of exposes the tension between what the United States' stated mission is or what they tell the public and I think what's really going on. Um, so that's to sort of now you're probably asking, well, what's the relevance to the Soviet Union in all of this or Russian history, Soviet history? And it's it's the fact that the communist bloc in Eastern Europe, so the communist governments in Poland, in Czechoslovakia, at the time it was called Czechoslovakia, uh, in um, Hungary, in Romania, uh, in East Germany, right? This was sort of the same sort of idea um, that the so that this was that communism um, between the Soviet Union and these Eastern European countries was mutually beneficial. They were there working for each other, um, but that was quickly shown to not be the case. So I guess before we, before we get, before we sort of dig in, you know, Andrew, how much do you know about the, the communist countries in Eastern Europe, the former communist countries, I should say. So I know a little, a little bit based on kind of what we've talked about on the show previously, but I think one of the things that was, um, you know, in our conversations about this topic prior to doing this episode, uh, the impression that I had gained and what was kind of taught to me in school was that you have NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, which is basically right. the um, the remnants of the allies and their spheres of influence um, aligned in a mutual mutual defense agreement, right? Kind of, as you said, like, this is all in our best interest. And uh, on the other side of that, you had the Warsaw Pact, which was always taught to me as this was basically the communist equivalent of NATO, and based on our conversations, that may not have actually been the case. Well, it's I think it's fair to point out that on some level, what you were taught was correct, right? I mean, mm -hmm. ostensibly, it is a mutual defense pact that was signed, actually it was created after NATO, really in response to NATO. Right, um, right. But I think the important thing to, to sort of, I guess we'll begin in talking about, you know, why does the Soviet Union even feel like it has to have a presence in Eastern Europe? And, you know, it, it goes back throughout Russian history. You know, we've talked about how they've been invaded from um, Western Europe on several occasions, right? Napoleon, uh, World War One. You know, oh, so yeah. They're, like the, the white armies. um you know, we, we actually, I don't think a lot of Americans know this, but we actually sent troops to assist the white armies in yeah, the, the Russian Polar Civil War. War. Like, yeah, we yeah. had Americans in Russia fighting yeah, the war in Russia. Russia. 
there's a there's a memorial to them somewhere i think in michigan i want to say because maybe a lot of those guys were from michigan but yeah you know intervention in the russian civil war so there's this long sort of history of you know russia being vulnerable to foreign invasion and so as as stalin and the so well i shouldn't say as stalin he's not personally doing this but mm -hmm. as soviet soldiers are moving through eastern europe right as they're pushing the nazis back there's a conversation of, okay, well, what is the future of this place going to look like? And I think more than anything, what the Soviets wanted was sort of a buffer zone between them and the West. Right. Right. So they're not going to take over this territory, but instead they're going to install, you know, friendly governments in place that will sort of do what they say. And, 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 you know, as we, as I stated earlier, like they'll act as a buffer zone. So if, and, and now this is, I just want to want to be clear here when we're talking about like a buffer zone, um, you know, one of the, I think one of the pitfalls that Americans have is we talk about the Soviet union and Russia interchangeably in that area, right? right? Like this was, was this, was a buffer zone to protect Ukraine or was a buffer zone to protect Russia and, you know, just add on to the buffer zone that Ukraine already provided to the West. Oh, okay. So, you know so, what I'm, you know what I'm asking? Yeah, no, I understand. What okay. You're asking. So, I mean, at this point, really, you know, Ukraine has never really been independent. I mean, it has, but not for very long. Okay. And so it's, it's considered part of the Soviet Union, right? Sort of always has been considered a traditional part of this, of this area. So really what we're talking about is if we, if you look at the modern, the borders of the Soviet Union post, you know, 1945, mm -hmm. they, they do take some additional territory, but, um, you know, you're talking about sort of what was traditionally the Russian empire, right? Is mm -hmm. now the Soviet Union. Um, there are, you know, some exceptions there. And really what the buffer zone is, is to protect the Soviet Union proper, Right. To make sure right. that the Soviet Union itself does not share a border with, you know, Germany, with, you know, the countries of Central Europe, with the countries of the West. Right. Right. So we're talking about placing a buffer zone between essentially what is NATO and the Soviet Union proper. OK. And that buffer zone is going to fall in Eastern Europe, you know, the to quote like uh uh, the Churchill, the Iron, Iron Curtain. Curtain. Yeah, the Iron Curtain speech, right? It's from, you know, the Baltic Sea in the north, you know, all the way down to the Adriatic, this sort of wall of, of communist countries that any Western invasion would have to go through to get to the Soviet Union itself. Um, and so as Soviet troops are, you know, pushing out the Nazis, the Germans, as they're taking over, um, it's sort of clear what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. Right. That these these countries are going to be pro-Soviet. Um, and so the, the Soviets essentially engineer for this to happen. Um, and they do have some things in their favor. I mean, on, on the one hand, it was the communists in these countries that were the most active resistors to German occupation. Right. So they have a lot of, you know, I guess, for lack of a better word, like street cred in that regard that the liberals don't have necessarily that like the concert, you know, the right. conservative parties don't have. So there is a lot of, you know, admiration for the communist party in, in these countries in this regard. Um, but at the same time, you know, they, they call it, uh, they sort of engineered the takeover through what they call like salami tactics. And I know that sounds kind of weird. Like what would that? Yeah. Mean? Can you ex 
Yeah, it, it, I mean, it sort of sounds like those uh, those images of like the Sopranos of just sitting around eating deli. Gabagool. <laughs> the gabagool. But then, no, that's not what that's not what happens. So what they do right is they install initially they don't want it to look like and this is actually really clever this is something that i don't know that the americans ever really learned from uh, well, when we okay. install actually yes explain this because this is actually kind of sounding a lot like um project gladio oh okay on the so, like the this is like the the soviet or i guess communist answer to project gladio which i'm not sure if you're familiar with that it, well, it's the whole idea that you have these, like, uh, if, if I'm remembering correctly, it's like these CIA plots to have, um, like, these sort of underground political organizations and, and, and saboteurs and whatnot that are ready in the case of a communist takeover or even, like, a democratically elected socialist government right. to, you know, destabilize things and return, you know, a more Western uh a West more, you know, a more pro U.S. government to. Right, right. Like, and, yeah. and I think specifically, you know, the, the most notable example is in Italy, hence the right. name, um, because, you know, like you were saying, the, the 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 parties in not just Eastern Europe, but in in Western Europe, too, that had the most cred for fighting the fascists weren't the liberals. It was the communists. And so you couldn't have the. You know, you couldn't have, um, it, it'd be a bad look for uh, these newly formed democratic states in Western Europe as well to start electing all these communists because they were the ones that um, stood up and fought the fascists. So, right. like, as you as you said, like, the uh, Project Gladio involved a lot of uh, CIA cells to um, not only be ready to go in the event of a Soviet invasion, Mm-hmm. Um, but also, you know, do things behind the scenes to discredit the communist and socialist parties and make sure that they did not come into power democratically. Yeah. And so it, it actually it's more like what the Soviets do is more uh, out in the open than that. So they okay. sort of encourage the formation of broad coalition governments. Right. Mostly with liberal parties. Mm-hmm. Um And but over time, what you sort of do is you pit one party against another and you use one party to help you get rid of another party in the coalition, then when that party's gone, you only have maybe two or three parties left, right? And so at the end of the day, who's left standing are is the Communist Party. And so they call right. it salami tactics, because if you want to cut a piece of salami in into pieces, you have to hold the, you hold the center, and then you cut off the right pieces, and then you move your hand over to the left, and now you can cut up the center. Right. Right. Use the center to cut up the right. Okay. Yeah. So that's the idea is that you sort of and it didn't play out this way in all countries and others. They were a bit more direct. But, you know, you sort of manipulate the coalition process to pit one coalition, you know, different parties against one another to, you know, get rid of others in the other regard. Or maybe you say, like, okay, we're going to form a coalition government, but, hey, Communist Party, like, we get to control the Interior Ministry, Mm -hmm. you know, right? Like, we we get to control the police. Um, And you engineer it so that they come to power, right? And so that's sort of what happens throughout all of Eastern Europe, is eventually the Communist Parties come to power. Uh, In many cases, you know, they change the Constitution or whatever the government document is to say that, 
you know, they'll the, they'll ostensibly have elections, but hey, like the only the only party they can run is the communists. Yeah, exactly. And they and the Soviet Union engineers this this sort of system. Um, but at the same but at the same time, right? There there are tensions within this system. Right. What are these what are these Eastern European countries? Are they just pure Soviet satellites that are supposed to do whatever is told or are, you know, for some of these communists, are they, you know, is it the case that, you know, if you stay communist, you can kind of do whatever, not do whatever you want, but like as long as are they you like true, the true believers, do you do you? Yeah, exactly. For the true believers. So sort of the first area of tension that, that crops up within the Eastern Bloc is have you ever heard of Khrushchev's um, secret speech before? Uh, I have not. OK, so the secret speech and this is sort of what really, you know, causes the first ripples in the uh, in the Eastern Bloc is after Stalin dies and Khrushchev comes to power, you know, he gives a speech in front of the um, of the Soviet Communist Party in front of like the Politburo, I think mm-hmm. where he essentially they call it the secret speech because it wasn't supposed to be made public. Right. Like the broader public wasn't supposed to hear this. Right. But, you know, Khrushchev denounces Stalin, denounces the cult of personality, you know, says Stalinism was a deviation from the true communist path. And, you know, that going forward, the Soviet Union is going to do things differently. Okay. of course, you know, the speech doesn't stay secret. And, you know, shortly after that, you have sort of the first movements of of independence in Eastern Europe in Hungary, Right, where Hungary elects a reformer, uh, Imri Naj, I think is his name. I, I don't speak um, Hungarian, so my pronunciation might be a little off. But they elect him, and he's, you know, I don't want to say that like he's a true communist believer, but like he he doesn't try to upset the entire system. Right, right, like he just sort of wants to lessen state control of the economy, uh, institute, you know, a, some more freedoms for people, and. The Soviet Union sends in the tanks. Okay. Yeah. You know, reinstalls a hardliner, uh, kill, they have Imri Naj sort of killed in a show trial, and, you know, sort of darkness falls over Eastern Europe for a while, right? But again, I mean, it sort of shows that this never really was a mutual, you know, sort of like that the Warsaw Pact wasn't um, a mutual sort of self defense treaty. Uh, and it also shows that the Eastern European project really wasn't about bringing the, you know, for lack of a better word, like the joys or the, the progress <laughs> of communism to, you know, the benighted masses of Eastern Europe. This wasn't this much. wasn't uh, Trotsky's, you know, continuing revolution. No, it was not at all. I mean, it's very much a cold geopolitical calculation of, you know, the the whole reason you exist is as a buffer against NATO and you're going to do what we tell you to do. Right. Uh, and something again similar happens in Czechoslovakia in 1968. Uh, it's known as the Prague Spring. Um, if you know, like the you pointed this out to me, Andrew, about Yaromir Yager. Yeah, I know this about him. But wh- why? So he why does he wear the number six? So okay, so Yaromir Yaromir Yager, famous um, Czech Czech player in the NHL, uh, he wears number 68, and the reason that he wears that is because his grandfather died in uh the Prague spring yeah and and it's exactly sort of the same reason so the czech the czechoslovak communist party elects alexander again i might not be pronouncing it right like dubček 
uh, again, like a, a, a socialist, like he's mm-hmm. a, he's a believer, uh, but he he embarks on this project of what they call like socialism with a human face. Right. So this idea that, you know, that the that the material gains that socialism offers are worth keeping, but that socialism should have the rights, you know, sort of afforded to people in in Western Europe. So there's but this loosen- is, sounds like a very like, you know, democratic socialist um, Rosa Luxemburg, like we're going to do the bread and roses type type socialism. Right. Like, yeah, ex- exactly. Um and I mean, it's it's a project that actually has a lot of support, you know, both w- like within the Communist Party itself in mm-hmm. Czechoslovakia and amongst, I think, the public at large. Uh, but again, the Soviet Union says absolutely not. You know, by this time, Brezhnev is in power. And this is sort of when the facade falls off the entire Eastern European communist project. Right. Because Brezhnev Sent you know sends in Warsaw Pact troops actually not just you know Soviet troops but Warsaw Pact troops they put down the Prague Spring after about eight months of of um, I don't want to say like open rebellion but you know like people attacking um, like street fighting I guess for lack of a better word like you have sort of unorganized groups right. attacking the Soviet soldiers um, the Warsaw Pact soldiers. And so about after eight months, you know, Dubček is removed from power. He's not killed. I, th- he, no, I know he's not killed because he becomes president of, or like prime minister of the Czech, um, of Czechoslovakia in like 1990, 1991. So, you know, they, but anyway, they remove the reformers. That's right. Cause I think he was, um, I'm sorry, sorry to interject, but I think he was no, one of the, okay. I think he was one of the guests that was on that, um, meeting Gorbachev. Oh. Uh, documentary with Werner Herzog. Um, okay. Highly recommend any of our audience that they they check it out. Um, yeah. Any sorry, I I really need to. Um, but um, so he, you know he's removed from power, and at this point, I think you know Brezhnev just sort of like tears the curtain off of the mm-hmm. whole you know charade and, and announces the Brezhnev doctrine, which is that you know we the Soviet Union as the first communist country in history right the, right i mean china would dispute this next part but like is also the most preeminent <laughs> communist right. country in the world you know we reserve the right um for the you know for sort of i guess the sake of the global revolution to intervene anytime that we see a country slipping away from its revolutionary principles uh you know which is a fancy way of saying like, naked you know, imperialism like, yeah, like if you don't <laughs> like what you're doing, we're going to intervene, um, and that doctrine carries the day, you know, throughout the the rest of the Soviet Union. Um, and now, is this is this this might be where you're going, but is that how the Soviet Union winds up in Afghanistan? Yes, it is. Okay, right, because they they they've helped install a friendly um, Soviet, you know, a Soviet friendly socialist regime there, and then when they see it struggling. It's Brezhnev. Now, granted, there are other reasons that we talked about, right? Like mm-hmm. they don't want um, a country, um, you know, an Islam, like a, a, an Islamic, um, a, a country founded and based on Islamic principles right on their border of their Islamic republics. Right. But the stated reason is the Brezhnev doctrine. Right. Right. So that's what gets the Soviets into trouble in Afghanistan. But now I think it's important to sort of pause at this point and, you know, sort of fast forward um, to now and what's going on with the United States. Um, and, and 
that before we like, before we do that, sure. Alex, I and maybe this is something better to um, come back to later. But when we're talking about the salami tactics, right? I couldn't help but think that there was a little bit of a, uh, um, you know, a little bit of a similarity to that and kind of Vladislav Surkov's, uh, you know, disinformation tactics and the managed democracy tactics oh, that are sure. current currently used, right? Like propping up these separate parties and then pitting them against each other is is there kind of like a um you know a through line there did did Surkov kind of say like hey this is something that kind of worked in the past let's you know repurpose it uh you know that is a very good question and and I don't have a solid answer for you I mean I, I certainly think that Surkov would have been aware of something mm-hmm. like that and and really the 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 Salani tactics if we want to go back a little uh, even further Right. They go all the way back to how Stalin himself took power. Right. You know, Stalin takes over and he is, um, you know, he's not like considered the most intellectually savvy member of the of the inner circle. Right. He's kind of sort of seen as this as a thug. Um, you know, he, he and then I say that in the sense that like he really got his start, like he got to start robbing like being a bandit, like like robbing banks and other enterprises to get fund the party for money, uh, and that's sort of how he gets his start. And he's right, kind of seen he's as, not like, the he's not the heady intellectual that you know Lenin no, he's, he's considered himself. Like, get, you know, get, he's the guy that you send in to like get things done. Right, right. You know, and he was a muscle. But, exactly, but you know, he's he was much cleverer than people give him credit for, uh, in the sense that he does something very similar. Right. So you have Trotsky, you know, sort of on the left. And then you have other people like Zinoviev and Kamenev and um, I forget all of their names. But, you know, you have these like mm-hmm. what they call the old Bolsheviks, um, which are sort of they were there from the beginning. Um, and as you know, Lenin dies and is dying, there's a question over what is what the future of the Soviet Union is going to be. And there are those that sort of align with Trotsky. Um, there are those that align more to like the right wing, if you want to call it that, of the Communist Party. And then you sort of have Stalin uh, in the middle. And, you know, Stalin forms an alliance with the more uh, right wing elements of the of the party and they kick Trotsky out of the party. They sort of neuter and neutralize the left wing. Uh, and then Stalin turns on those from the right that helped him. Uh, so at the very end, not to say that like Stalin was in the center, but the whole time, you know, like he's not a centrist, um, but, you know, that he used the different <laughs> wings. He used the different wings of the party against one another so that at the end of the day, he's the one who's in the position of power. Right. And so something similar plays out with the salami tactics where you have a government where you have these broader coalition governments now, maybe, you know, you get the, the Communist Party to be the majority, like the largest party in the coalition, you know, whatever. But when you take out one party or when you sort of remove one party from the coalition, you have the others go along with you. You have them help you. So there's this consensus, right, that this is, you know, just a normal mm-hmm. functioning parliamentary system. And then by the time the other parties realize what's going on, it's too late. The communists are firmly in control and they can take over. So I don't know. I mean, to go back to your question, like, I don't know if Surkov had that in mind when he decides to, you know, to do this. Um, 
I don't think like, you know, postmodernism and this like fact that we live in a post-truth society, I, I don't think it quite taken over. But I mean, I'm certainly I'm sure he was aware of it. Um, right. And, and perhaps like that influenced his thinking. But yeah, that's that's an excellent question to to. And but to answer it, I think we'd have to ask Vladislav Surkov. And I don't I don't, <laughs> I don't think he would appear well, on the podcast. With us. Um, we'll reach out to his press agent. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, you know, the to, to go back to to now. Right. I mean, we're facing something very similar in Iraq right now mm-hmm. because ostensibly we are there at their behest to protect, you know, to fight ISIS, I think is the, is the reason now, uh, and right. I mean, to go even before that. Right. I mean, we, we started this whole project and I'm talking about back in 2003 of deposing Saddam Hussein, of installing a new government of, you know, bringing freedom and democracy to the middle East, you know, the, the neocon sort of dream of, of a de- democratic American aligned middle East, uh, and, you know, now I think we're starting to see what the the game was the whole time. You know, I, I think that we started to see that already when, you know, Trump was in power or sorry, is, when Trump was running for president and was saying things like, oh, we should have kept the oil. Um, you know, like we, we, we should have been more naked in our self-interest. Right. And, I, you know, now like the now the, the I think the ultimate question and something that I think is going to have a profound effect on American on the course of American history throughout the the 21st century and again maybe I'm overstating this but if and 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 we've stayed in places after they've left they've told us to leave too we, I should make that clear too but anyway if Iraq does indeed formally you know through the the proper mechanisms of power mm-hmm. pass a resolution or some sort of law and the prime minister says, you know what, like the people have spoken and and I represent the people of Iraq and we want you to leave. And what happens at that point? Because, you know, the United States, we have said, no, we're staying, you know, that we're we're a force for good. And right. at that point, I think that the I think the, the curtain gets lifted. Right. And I think that the American people and people all across the world are going to have to reckon with, you know, why is it that the United States has these soldiers and these, you know, troops all over the world? Like when those like three or four guys got killed in Niger, you know, you had um, a couple U.S. senators, I think, be like, I didn't know we had troops (laughs) in Niger. Like this is this, you know, this is news to me. And and I think that, you know, that's really the moment. And and I think that that's going to be a monumental moment because it it's going to represent the culmination of so many things, right? The culmination of the United States presence in Iraq since 2003, um, the, the culmination of this, I think, so far botched experiment at installing a pro-American democracy mm-hmm. uh, and, and also the culmination of like – is the United States really an empire? And and I think that like that's a question that we should have that we should have answered uh, or should have posed at the very beginning because I th- sort of the fascinating another fascinating parallel and um, you know this, on some level I'm glad we don't script these shows too well because this just came to mind is the United States and the Soviet Union were empires that I think if you would have asked its 
people or even its leaders, are you an empire, they would have said, oh, of course not. Right. Empires are bad. Well, this is, this is, um, uh, Daniel Imrawar has a book out and he's, I haven't read it, but he's done a number of, you know, like he's done the rounds and I've heard right. him talk about the point of it, but the book is called How to Hide an Empire. And it's basically all about, you know, kind of what, what we're talking about, how the United States has a pretty long, um, track record in history of, uh, imperial projects, but always doing so in such a way that it's never really official, right? Like instead of it being, um, like instead of calling them colonies, right? Like it's, we instead just, um, had these territories that we, we would just never acknowledge that we were even occupying these places to begin with. Right. And I mean, I, that, that raises another important point of, you know, have we really gotten over the Imperial project? Um, and, and, uh, but I mean by that is like the drive of like Germany and France right. and, and Britain to carve up the world into colonies because they feel like they're needed for material resources. Well, right. Prestige. I mean, like it's all, it's all resource extraction is basically what this comes down to, uh, fertilizer, like, uh, guano on these tropical islands. You know, that's why we've got territories on the, um, on all these different different islands that I don't think many Americans even realize exist. Uh, I mean, just look at how many people weren't aware that Puerto Ricans were American citizens. Oh, I know, right? Yeah, no, that that's I, that just shows. Yeah, I mean that that I think that highlights you know part of the whole thing, and or even knowing like the history of the Philippines, right? Like, mm-hmm. How that, you know, we took that colony, it was a Spanish colony, and we took it and basically kept it as our own after the Spanish-American War. Um, right. But, yeah, I mean, what's interesting, right, is that at least in the 20th century, some of the, the grander uh, imperial projects were built by countries that ostensibly said that, you know, imperialism was bad, right? I mean, like, Lenin right. writes that his famous, um, you know, cap- or imperialism is the highest stage of capitalism, um, you know, says that like the conflag- the conflagration that was World War One is a direct result of capitalist greed and imperialism. Uh, so right. the Soviets can't go out and say, yeah, we have an empire. Uh, it becomes, you know, communism for, you know, mutual benefit, uh, for mutual defense. But it's the communism that we say it is. And as far as the United States goes, uh, I mean, it, it's this idea of, um, you know, I, I I always hate to quote him, but um, to bring up, you know, what George W. Bush said, right? Like, you know, oh, like, you know, the Iraqis, the Iranians, I can't do his like Connecticut, what? His Texan Connecticut, accent, Texas. <laughs> his, his Ivy League Texan accent. They hate us for our freedom, Andrew. You know, they hate it because we could go out and eat a buffet-style dinner on Saturday night for nine ninety-nine or whatever. Um <laughs> And so, you know, when we go over there, it's like, but look what we're doing. Like, we're making, you know, we're we're making them better off. Like, who wouldn't want this? You know, like, mm-hmm. who wouldn't want to be free? Everyone loves being free. Um, and, you know, that's sort of how we've justified our own excursions, right? Whether it was South or South Vietnam, right? Like, we're propping up a democracy of people that just want to be free and you know, they just want to live in peace if it weren't for these terrible North Vietnamese communists, mm-hmm. right? Or, you know, even 
uh, even in, well, we've been more naked in our self-interest, too. I mean, South America is sort of the big exception, or we've abandoned any sort of pretense about bringing democracy. Like, I'm thinking of, like, Pinochet and, um, you know, and others, or even Iran, you know, when we destabilized the most of that See, you say say that, Alex, but, like, I I, I mean, it is, it's in, it is, it's mind-blowing to me how... Um, even in like mainstream publications, just like the whole, uh, pro like it's so, so Chile, uh, which is, you, you mentioned, you mentioned Pinochet and how, um, we basically, yeah, which for those we, we who basically know, overthrew it's not some type of like Chilean red wine. It's actually, <laughs> um, uh, it's actually a general who we helped lead a military coup and overthrow right. a democratically elected and, socialist and, and we, part of part of that coup and you know this is a they call them the Chicago boys right like oh, it right. was it was all of the Chicago school Milton Friedman um, neoliberal economics were put into place in in Chile with the the Pinochet regime and you hear that talked about and mentioned in kind of, um, you know, what, what you would consider like the high minded liberal, uh, media circles like NPR. And they talk about it as though like, Oh, well, this was, um, you know, this was good because now Chileans have access to credit cards and things like that. (laughs) And it's, and it, it just completely ignores and washes over the fact that the a uh, a sovereign democratically elected government was overthrown, mm-hmm. um, which is in and of itself bad and troubling. But b the guy that was put in place was a monster. Yeah, he was. And, and so now, the, and it also it also completely ignores that these projects have failed, right? Like that this. That these economic policies have completely failed because um, Chile right now has the uh, uh, if I'm if I'm remembering this right they have the worst Gini coefficient which is you know the way you measure uh, income inequality and unequal yeah. um, uh, wealth distribution they have the worst and of course you know number two is the United States. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. Their their student loan crisis is worse than ours, uh, and this is you know this is why you have all these protests and ongoing unrest in uh, Santiago when uh, and Chile in general because of things like a dollar fare hike on their metro station because you know that is just the last thing that that pushes you know pushes the populace over and say like we can't we can't do this this is. It is impossible for us to survive in these conditions. Yeah, and well, I mean, and, and to you know, to go back to what we were um, to kind of tie this into what we were talking about, you know, before, um, you know, it it is something where I guess, like, you, you know, you raised a good point with the Chicago school because, like, yes, while Pinochet was not the um, you know, did not have like democratic, a democratic and free and open society. Like a lot of where we intervened, as you sort of pointed out, 
was to install these sort of very neoliberal types of economic systems. Right. Right. With privatization and things like that, because ultimately, like, that is what would benefit the United States the most. Um, but, you know, again, like I it, what's I think what separates all of that from now is, you know, here we have this sort of moment where a sovereign country for the, you know, is going to ask us like, hey, leave. And I'm tr I'm trying to think of a time before where this has happened. And, and, and I really can't think of it. Right. right? It's because I'm. Because it's, for the most part, like we've always made sure that there's a friendly regime in place. Right. right? <laughs> it's um, never been it's never been at least not that I can recall. There's never been the situation where there's not some sort of plausible deniability. Right. Like yeah. this is this is not to say that the United States has not interfered with other countries because that is demonstrably untrue. Right. Like yeah. we have a pretty long track record of. Uh, going in and toppling regimes that um, are unfriendly to American business interests. And I mean, look, well, if I... the term banana republic. It, well, strong. exactly, exactly. <laughs> and if, you know, if I were a betting man, like I would bet money that uh, the coup in Bolivia was in part, like we had a hand to play in that because of the lithium in, oh, in, right. in Bolivia. And, you Good know... Nirvana song, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I mean, like, you know, we think of, you know, we're going to be doing this, uh, we're, we're either going to die or transition to a green economy, and lithium resources are going to be a big part of that. Well, yeah. you know, the last thing that American business interests want is a nationalized uh, lithium company in Bolivia right. that right. is, that you know, that isn't uh, distributing the profits of Bolivia, or uh, I'm sorry, of lithium mining to shareholders, but rather, you know, actually making sure that the people in Bolivia get the value of those resources. So exactly, yeah. I, I would I would venture a guess that we had something to do with that. But to to your point, like this is there's it's going to be really hard for them to try and find some type of plausible deniability here in yeah. in Iraq. Other than just coming out and saying that the entire Iraqi government is illegitimate, yeah. which, you know, like I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if that's the the route that they take. You know, they could probably say, um, I, I don't know if you read this in in the Intercept in New York Times. They did a they did a shared piece where you know they pointed out the level of influence that. Iran has been able to exert on or on the Iraqi government because of the vacuum that was created by our invasion. Um, but you know that to me that opens up a a perfect opportunity for uh, for the United States to say, well, no, this is the Iraqi government is an Iranian puppet state, and so we don't have to listen to what they say. No, of course that is obviously all wrong. And like right. that doesn't even if it is a, you know, a puppet state, whatever that means, that doesn't matter. It's still it's still a sovereign nation saying leave. Um, but other than that, I struggle to think of how they are going to go on the world stage uh, and and justify to all these other to all the other nations saying uh no, yeah, that that sovereign nation that we were 
we were only there because um, they asked us to come back and help fight ISIS. So uh, to to go over the timeline, right? Like we invaded Iraq in 2003, uh, toppled Saddam Saddam Hussein's regime, and then set up an Iraqi democracy. Um, and you know, under Obama, we ostensibly basically left. Then ISIS rose up and. The United States came back as part of a coalition fighting ISIS, which, uh, you know, as an aside, Qasem Soleimani was a critical ally in that fight against ISIS. Um, but, you know, that's neither here nor there. Um, and so the United States presence in Iraq, you know, currently is entirely based on the Iraqi people or Iraqi government asking us to be there. And, and so, remember, according to Trump, we've already defeated ISIS. Right, like we've defeated ISIS. We've defeated ISIS. So, what is our purpose for being there? And if they say, "Okay, it's time for you to go," uh, other than saying that this is an illegitimate government, government, I don't know what the justification is going to be. And yeah, and it's kind of horrifying because. Um, this kind of gets back to I can't remember if we were recording when we were we you know when you were kind of doing that that riffing bit like it's you know they won't ever actually ask us to leave because of the implication. Um, oh right, but, yeah. Well, I mean, I think that I I think that this is a good point to bring that up for people who you know maybe watch um, it's always sunny in Philadelphia. I mean, I right. think so much of like the American presence across the entire world now is built on you know what's called like the implication. Uh, and so for those of you who haven't seen It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, it's the episode like the gang buys a boat. Yeah. <laughs> the whole reason that, you know, Dennis Reynolds, who's this, you know, misogynist and, you know, an overall like horrible person, you know, the reason he wants to buy a boat is so he can get women out onto the open water. And then when he asks them to go, you know, below deck with him, they're, they're going to say yes. And so one of the character, Mac, like one of the other characters, Mac, is like, wait a second, like, I don't understand what's going on because it sounds like you're going to hurt these girls if they say no. And Dennis is like, what are you talking about? Like, no one's under in danger. Like, I'm not actually going to do anything bad to them. It's going to happen. It's the implication. Right. And and so Mac's always like, well, what if they say no? And, and Dennis says, well, they're not going to say no because of the implication. And. You know, now I, I think that the United States' foreign policy, especially in Iraq, has sort of entered that phase where it's, you know, we have our soldiers in 100 plus different countries. And what happens if they ask us to leave? Well, I think what the, you know, we, I think you can sort of imagine this, this conversation between some sort of low level American um, in, the, in the bureaucratic system who really believes, you know, the, the Bush line of that we're spreading freedom across the world. And, you know, he's talking to his superiors about Iraq, like, you know, if they ask us to leave, well, we have to do that, right? Because that's democracy. And, you know, I could just see the general or whoever being like, yeah, but they're not going to ask us to leave because of the implication. Like, well, well, what's the, what's the implication? Like, I feel like, are we occupying these countries? Are we an, an occupying force? No, no, well, this is occupied. this is see. And and what is what's wild is. You don't even have to joke about that, Alex, because it's happening. Because yeah. this was this was a headline from yesterday in the Wall Street Journal. 
U.S. officials warned Iraq that it risks losing access to its account at the New York Fed, where international oil revenue is kept, if it moves to expel U.S. troops. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> so, see? Like, that really, is the implication. They're really not going to do anything because of the implication. And, you know, so, you know, what does that all mean, right? And then we go back to, um, this is, I think, a good transitionary moment, too, to um, the, the next point that we want to talk about. So like to sort of recap, we've we've discussed how the Soviet Union and the United States have built empires for lack of, a you know, for that. No, there actually is no better term because that's what it was. <laughs> have built, have built empires without calling them that. But, you know, really based on the assumption that that these countries, these allied countries are not going to go a different direction because, you know, as the Soviets demonstrated in, in 56 and 68 and even in the 80s when they told Poland to basically install martial law or else. Um, and, the, you know, the United right. States now is implying something very similar to Iraq, like <laughs> we get to stay or else. Um, so we have, you know, empires basically built on fear and external pressure. Mm-hmm. Um, by two countries that you know seemingly have avowed avowed those things, whether it's the Soviet, you, you know, whether it's the Soviets rejecting imperialism because of communism, or the um, or the United States rejecting it under the auspices of well, it's not you know democratic. They're call you know colonialism doesn't um, encourage free markets. Blah 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 blah. So now where are we? Um, and now what moment? Or what can the Soviet Union teach us about this moment? And and I think that I think what it can show us is, you know, despite the seeming strength of an empire, despite its wide presence throughout the world, uh, it can all come to an end in the blink of an eye. Right. Uh, and and I think of like 1989. I mean, if there's any sort of any measure for hope, right, in in all of this, it I think it it has to be 1989. Where you had, uh, you know, sort of first in Poland, you had this agreement from the Communist Party. They they could not maintain martial law. They decide to form a government with solidarity, the Solidarity Movement, which was very, you know, very famous in Poland. Uh, Lech Walesa, uh, its leader, and you know, at this point, Gorbachev is the leader of the Soviet Union. He's the general secretary. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we've talked a lot about Gorbachev and how much we admire him. And, and I think this is another sort of moment where we can sort of express our admiration because Gorbachev basically says, you know, look, like we are no longer going to interfere in the internal, you know, affairs, the domestic affairs of our allies. We are not going to do it. And he base and he backs down and he tells Soviet soldiers based in these countries, you know, stay on your bases, you know, don't, you know, don't go out and interfere. And so communism falls very quickly in, um, in Poland, uh, fall. And then like Hungary, I think follows shortly thereafter. But anyway, it's just a series of, you know, cascading side effects where once it becomes clear that the Soviet union has sort of, I guess, removed the, the implication, right? Like they really can't say no, that's it. And by the end of 1989, I think every, I mean, I might be wrong, but almost all of the Eastern communist countries in 1989 are gone by the end of the year. In a year, Mm -hmm. it's over. 
And then, of course, two years later, the Soviet Union will collapse. But I mean, the, I think the thing to stress is like once that that external fear is is removed, you know, that that collapsed so quickly. And, you know, I sort of wonder, too, now where we're entering a moment like we've talked about this um, with the 2020 election coming up where, you know, I, I don't know in, in terms of America's foreign presence, like what the how the contours of the debate are going to shape up. But I mean, I think that it's fair to to think that there will be a segment of, I think, at least the Democratic Party saying, like, what is this all for? Well, I think you it's know? I don't even think it's a. It's it's a segment. I think it's really just, you know, the only Democratic candidate that that was unequivocal in uh, his response saying that assassinating Soleimani was bad was Bernie Sanders. Yeah, well, and, and I mean, Sanders, unlike, um, you know, unlike some of the other candidates, um, he, he's always voted against all the wars. Now, I mean, to be fair, like for Elizabeth Warren, I don't think that she was a senator. Um, no, she was 2003. She wasn't. But her her. Um... Her foreign policy uh, positions have actually, I mean, she's really couched it in a lot of like the the same type of right wing language um, that, you know, others have used. And I don't know if you saw her basically just get bullied into calling Soleimani, Soleimani a terrorist on The View by Meghan McCain. So it's like, well, if, if you're going to be if you're going to be pushed over by Meghan McCain, then like what's going to stop like a you know, a general from right, from right. pushing you into, you know, saying that, yeah, I don't really feel great about, about authorizing this drone strike, but I've got all these generals telling me that it's good and that this is, yeah. you know, this is right and proper. So I suppose, um, uh, but I, I mean, it, it's, um, I, I, yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't well, know. It's... I guess it, I think it's so I think we're, what we can do with this is, you know, we, we have, you know, Bernie Sanders who voted against um, the Iraq invasion. You know, he's been um, he's been sort of the anti-war guy for a very, very long time. I and mean, he right. has that sort of credit. And I guess sort of what I was trying to intimate here is like we don't know what's going to happen. Right. Between the United States and Iran. Now, it, it could be very much the case that Iran decides to de-escalate things or that we decide to de-escalate things or that, you know, there's going to be some sort of tragedy where everyone is like, you know what, like, this is crazy. Let's just step back from all of this. That could very well happen. But the reverse could happen, too. You know, Iran could use its proxy forces throughout the world to intensify attacks on our embassies, our citizens, our soldiers, you know, we could respond in turn. And then I think that we, you know, we're going to have the American public uh, in an election year, no less, sort of faced with this question of what's going on here. So perhaps the conversation will be broader than, right. than we think. But, you know, the, the ultimate, I think, issue is going to be, you know, what is the United States's presence in the world? Um, and, you know, I think that like on some level, like Trump is like Brezhnev, uh, our Brezhnev, and that he sort of tore the curtain off the whole charade, right? Like the, right. the whole facade of of like going to NATO and being because I, I do sometimes wonder, like, what is you know, what's the purpose of NATO? You know, like if you ask Russia, uh, it's just it's um, an alliance aimed at, you know, at keeping them down to threaten them. Uh, you know, if you if you ask the United States, 
I think it would say something different. But I mean, like, let's look at NATO post 9-11. You know, NATO has been used to fight the United States' wars in uh, Iraq, in um, Afghanistan. Afghanistan. Now, Afghanistan, you know, makes a little bit more sense because of the mutual defense, um, you know, provisions like Article 5. So I think you could make not a very good argument, but you could at least argue, okay, like, Al Qaeda mm-hmm. attacked the United States and the Taliban supported Al Qaeda. So, you know, this is something that NATO could undertake. But Iraq, I don't know, you know, what the justification was for that. So, anyway, now, you know, Trump is always blustering about how, well, they, NATO doesn't, you know, the other NATO countries don't pay their fair share. Uh, maybe if they don't keep paying us, we'll, you know, withdraw from the mutual defense part of it. Like, we'll only protect those countries that pay us. And, you know, while there's a lot of consternation over what that means for Europe with, you know, a resurge in Russia, I I think the other thing that it it does beg the question of is like, you know, what is NATO's purpose Mm -hmm. in the 21st century? Now, we I'm not necessarily saying we need to get rid of NATO, but, you know, what is it? And, And if it's something where you're talking about having United States soldiers in European countries and, you know, they have to pay us to keep them there or else, uh, then it's no better off than what we've been talking about, like in Iraq, right? It's, right. It's, we're just there because of, you know, the implication. Uh, if it's something else, then, you know, so be it. But I wouldn't, you know, who knows, you know, you can never predict the future, but I, I do sometimes wonder if by killing Soleimani, uh, Trump sort of instigated this chain reaction in which perhaps we see a rollback of the American empire, right? Well, this is, yeah, this is something that we talked about um, before, you know, in the lead up to this episode, kind of discussing what we wanted to cover. And I think we may begin to look back on this, not not the, the assassination of Soleimani itself, but, you know, what happens when Iraq says leave and we say no, um, as kind of the United States Suez crisis, right? Oh, and, right. And that, and for those that aren't aware, the Suez crisis was kind of, you know, I think everyone would agree that, like, that was clearly the beginning of the end of the British Empire um, because it showed that they do not have, you know, they don't have that, uh, they don't have the power for the implication, right, that we've been talking about. So when... Um, the Suez Canal, which connects, uh, is it, it's the, it's is the Mediterranean the and, and the Red Sea. That's right. Yeah. So basically allows you to ship goods from, you know, in the British case, if from India, right. Right. To ship goods and oil. You don't have to sail all the way around Africa. Right. And the, it is controlled. Like it's, it's basically in Egypt. And so the Suez crisis was Egypt um, taking control over over the canal and British and French forces went to uh, and I think Israel might have been part of this as well. Um, But it was like an eight day kind of mini war to try and regain uh, control over over this canal. And it stopped like the, the fighting stopped. Because the United States and the Soviet Union were the ones that put pressure on 
the UK and France and said, no, you have to let this go. Like this, you can't, you can't basically go into a sovereign country and, you know, demand that like they don't control something that is entirely within their, their borders. Um, Mm -hmm. And the whole thing was, was a humiliating defeat for uh, United Kingdom. And from there, that's when you start to see the the beginning of the end, right? Like this is when, um, you know, what little territories that they had, had left. I believe, I believe India had gained its independence it had before then. before then. Suez was like 1956. Yeah, I mean, Indian independence. I like want to say it's like in late the late 40s. 40s. Right. Yeah. So, um, so India had already gained its independence, but it was, you know, I think the Suez crisis was the British saw it as a chance to, you know, show that they were still a world-spanning power that was capable of fighting two world wars. Um, and they couldn't, yeah. right? Like it was, they couldn't, they just didn't have that capacity anymore. And after that, it was like, all right, well, this is, this is it. We're closing, we're closing the book on the days of the British empire and they're it's no the longer. now. Yay. Yeah, exactly. Um, um yeah, no, I, I, um, I, I think that it could very well. And now I don't know if it would be Iraq, like Iraq in and of itself. But I mean, I'm sort of wondering, like, you know, given Trump's like bellicose rhetoric, and and you know, given how you know mm-hmm. affairs of the heart can go, I sort of wonder what happens when he realizes that Kim Jong Il or Kim Jong Un, sorry, really doesn't love him, and you know, things start to worsen with North Korea, and I and I and I do wonder, like. Would South Korea be like, you know what, like we're actually safer without all these U.S. troops here? Right. Right. I mean, what it like, what if it's I guess where I'm going with this is like, what if it's a country that, you know, because of like racism, Orientalism, all those other things we can't so easily dismiss. Right. right. Like a country like South Korea or I'm thinking like Japan. I'm pretty sure that we yeah, we still have a base on Okinawa. Yeah. Um we might even have other bases. We, like we I'm positive we've got troops in, um, you know, like we've got forces stationed in, in Japan. But I, I definitely think South Korea would be a really, that would be, if South Korea says, United States, you need to leave because you're, you're making things too, too tense with, with the North right now. And especially con- considering that Moon Jae-in, the, the president of South Korea, one of his platforms was, you know, making peace with the North, right? Yeah. Like we don't want to be in this uh, constant standoff holding pattern with our guns cocked and loaded and pointed at each other. We don't want to keep doing that. This isn't yeah. good for anyone. And we want to, you know, we want to uh, draw down. And if the United States isn't going to let them do that, eventually the South Koreans might say, then you need to go. And if they say that and we say no, then I think, mm-hmm. yeah, then it would be, then you're in trouble, <laughs> and, right? Like, well, yeah, and and but I mean, at the, at the same time, like, uh, um, you know, sort of what we were talking about before, you know, like with with Gorbachev, like there was a lot of I think within the Soviet Union itself, 
um, th from the like common people, like, you know, no, why don't, why don't, you know, we don't need to interfere in these countries anymore. Like we have more important things to deal with. And I sometimes do wonder too, if, you know, I think that at some point, at least I hope that this will happen, like there will be a moment where there is a reassessment, uh, perhaps in the United States of of what our project is across the world and will be like and and it would be you know what like it doesn't make us safer uh it doesn't bring stability to the rest of the world mm -hmm. and you know these soldiers the money that we're spending um we can better spend it to keep us safe by i don't know focusing on more you know domestic priorities you know things like that uh, and we don't need to have soldiers all over the world to keep the United States proper, uh, properly protected. Right. And, and I guess what I would say is like, even though, I mean, maybe here's a good point to, to keep in mind, um, for, for our listeners, um, just because like, it's so dark right now. And, and just because, you know, the American empire, I think has reached a level that, you know, we never hoped it would reach doesn't mean that things can't necessarily reverse extremely rapidly. Um, I think that is sort of the lesson that Eastern Europe uh, and the Soviet, um, you know, collapse there. I think that's what it offers. Right. Um, so, again, going forward, like, you know, we don't know what necessarily is going to happen. Um, but I do, you know, I do think that it was worth uh, having the conversation we did. And I mean, this is something, too, where like, you know, as we are getting more as we are getting closer to a potential conflict or, or of something or something like that with Iran, I mean, now is a good, you know, opportunity to like, you know, talk to your friends, talk to your congressman, like talk to people, you know, and explain to them, you know, what you think is really going on. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, you know, and explain to them that like, I think the other thing to keep in mind too, and, and this is sometimes like, the that's I, to me anyway, one of the reasons I always love studying history is just these beautiful moments when you have someone like Gorbachev or the, the people across Eastern Europe, you know, from everyone, from political leaders down to common people mm -hmm. who say, you know what, it doesn't have to be this way. Right. I mean, that is those are the truly momentous moments is like despite our thinking that things will never change or that things have always been this way. It's amazing how fast they can change when people just stand up and say, it doesn't have to be like this. Well, right. I mean, like that is, I think that's what's meant by, you know, like hindsight's always twenty twenty, And, um, you know, we've got countless examples of, of that, that like everything, everything seems impossible until it's not. Yeah. You know, like, yeah, or I mean, you know, everything works until it doesn't. <laughs> yeah, that's also true. <laughs> I mean, you know, I hate to rub salt on the wound, Andrew, but it's sort of like the, you know, the the end of the Patriots dynasty, right? I mean, um, hey, look, to my credit, I was saying from the from the beginning they were going to lose that game to Tennessee. I know. I know. <laughs> I know, I know but I know. no, you're you're right. Like, but, I mean, like you know, to to make the sports reference, like it was sort of incredible to me that. There were so many talking heads. Now, true, like the you know the Patriots have proved people wrong before. Um, you know, sort of Tom Brady's career is built on that. And like, I don't want to take anything away from what Belichick and Brady and the whole organization achieved, but it was just sort of remarkable to see a lot of the talking heads be like, 
you know, oh, the it's the playoffs. Like somehow, you know, Brady and Belichick will find a way. You know, you you can't discount the Patriots. Right. And like everyone was trying to like come up with these excuses that somehow that you know that they would pull this off and win a Super Bowl. Now, probably not everybody, but I think that was sort of the consensus. Like at least what I was seeing was, oh, you can't discount you know Brady and Belichick in the playoffs. And then they just basically get absolutely manhandled by the Titans. And now that's it. And now just in a matter of a week or so, the conversation's completely different. Right. right? Like this is the end for Brady and Belichick. You know, this well, is at the least, end of you know, the Patriots it, dynasty. At like, least, and, I mean, I think, I think that's a good example because, but like, I mean, at least in that context, you know that you, you know that it has to end sometime because like the players just can't keep playing forever. But I think that's true. I think I think a good, um, a, a better sports analogy would be that it, you cannot tell. You would never be able to tell anyone if you went back a hundred years from now, or a hundred years ago. You would never be able to tell anyone that the sport that drives people mad and just is really the center point of American sporting culture is not baseball. It's some it's some game that has a bunch of meatheads running around in a muddy field. Yeah. Right? Like the idea that baseball would ever be supplanted as the cultural sporting centerpiece as of America's United States. Yeah, as that, that that would ever lose that status is absurd. In the same way that I think if you tell anyone now that Look, the NFL has only got maybe, if it's lucky, a decade or two left as as its status before right, or being supplanted by I think the NBA. Right. Yeah. I I think yeah. that's I think the NBA is a good a good like a good um, bet to be like you know what's next. Um, the other one is soccer because like yeah. just so many kids are playing it. So many kids are playing it, and that's, you know, kids watch what they play. No, that's true. Um, well, and, you know, and the, I mean, you do get concussions in soccer, but I just, right. you know, the risk for, the risk for longer term injury, I think, is less in sports like basketball and, and soccer. So, yeah, I mean, I, I totally agree. It is, um, it is, there is a, it's a, um, yeah, this gets back to that kind of point that, like, everything seems impossible until it's not because, yeah. you know, or here's here's an even better example, Alex. If you were to go back and tell people that one day Sears would be bankrupt oh, right. and just yeah. not exist anymore, would a, and would be like the laughing stock of right, of can the you American can you imagine yeah. the reaction people would have if you went back to like nineteen the nineteen forties and nineteen thirties and said, yeah, you see all this. You see all this uh, um, this this massive catalog that you get everything from. One day it's going to be supplanted by a bookseller. Yeah, I know. It, it, you'd get laughed out of the room. Well, and... or you know, I even remember. Here's something else too, and and you and I are old enough to remember this. I remember when the first generation iPhone came out. And right, I, and I swore. <laughs> I mean, and, and talk about like, you know, we're, let's put aside politics and all of that kind of stuff. I mean, talk about like a revolutionary invention. Right. Right. I mean, like the smartphone. 
they're almost inseparable from us now. I mean, pretty soon, like, you can probably have an operation to, like, install a smartphone in your palm or something. <laughs> it's the Futurama um, iPhone. It, yeah, goes, it, it literally goes in your eye. <laughs> and And... I remember when it first came out, I remember, I mean, I didn't have the money to buy one, um, but I remember reading an article that some guy, I don't, I I'm, I'm, don't know if I could ever find this again. I'll try to look, but he wrote, he was writing about how expensive it was. And he was like, oh, this is like the most worthless thing ever. Like you could just, um, you could just tape a cell phone to your, um, to your iPod and save yourself a hundred bucks and you'd have the same thing. Like this is the dumbest thing ever. Right. And, and, and now look <laughs> at it. I mean, they're, they're in the span of a decade there and in there. And it, I think for so many people, it would be inconceivable, right? Like it's, we're already at this point of talking about like detoxing from cell phones. Like they become that pernicious. And I've heard, and like, I've heard too, that like other companies are thinking about reintroducing dumb phones, Right. And, right. and land like people are like nostalgic about landlines now and stuff, too. So, I mean, that just shows you. Right. Like nothing. I don't know. That's sort of the 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 beauty and like the nightmare of 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 the world that we live in. Right. Is like I think on the one hand, it gives the appearance of stasis. Right. That nothing's changing that, you know, or the, the classic line of like, well, it's always been this way, Sonny. Uh but then it changes so fast. And right. in fact, I think on some level it changes so fast you don't even know what's happened. Right. Um, and so, you know, we'll we'll leave you with that. Um, that if the Soviet Union in, in 1989 and its collapse in Eastern Europe can show us anything uh, that relates to this moment, it's the American empire is it's not invincible. Uh, it doesn't have to last forever. And, you know, as 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 many years as it's taken us to get to this point mm -hmm. uh, and as many, you know, as much like money and blood and tears and everything else that we've shed for it, uh, it can all be undone like that. You know, like I'm snapping my finger if you can't hear it like, yeah. like that. So, again, like for all of the, you know, for all of you listening, like, you know, keep that in mind as we go forward. Um so as far as next episode's uh, show goes, I don't know exactly what we're going to talk about. Just we'll see what's in the news. Us. Yeah, just because the news <laughs> changes so fast on us. Um, but, you know, before we go, we do need to thank our sponsors, specifically Trump Tower Tehran. Um, <laughs> that actually is a price for peace in the Middle East. Uh, <laughs> so... Um, we can only hope, right? I, I guess I would let him have a, a hotel in Tehran. Um, <laughs> so thanks. It's going to be one of the. It's going to be one of the few cultural sites left standing. Oh God. <laughs> uh, yeah, maybe that's how they save the cultural sites. They just be like, yeah, you can you <laughs> slap know, put a, a Trump marquee logo that on says it. like Trump, <laughs> Trump mosque on it, or you know, Trump Persian <laughs> ruins. We'll let you build a golf course like a hundred yards. From yeah. <laughs> oh God. All right. Well. Anyway, uh, we hope you enjoyed this episode. Um, you know, we hope it provided you some some insight onto what's going on in the world and you know what you can maybe do about it. Uh, and you know, join us for the next episode where we will talk about the next crazy, you know, absolutely wild thing that has happened <laughs> um, in this day and age. Um, I guess it's a great time to have a 
a podcast living yeah. living in the living in the end times, living in, a, <laughs> in an empire and its death rattle. So we hope you we hope you join us for that. All right, thanks for listening, folks. We'll see you next episode. Oh, 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 oh,